Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. How are you? I am wonderful. I know we both have a common interest in history. That is true. That's one hint already, is this is going to have kind of a historical slant. Very cool. But I thought, just to kind of get things started, I'd ask a, a slightly unrelated question. I know you recently took a visit to Biltmore. I did, yeah. yes, for my birthday. So just briefly, just in a I don't know, a paragraph format rather than, you know, an essay. Just share with <laughs> you us a little bit. You are such a teacher. <laughs> every, every episode, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a quiz. <laughs> this is an essay response. Okay, what is no, it? No, it's not an essay. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the paragraph or okay. a post-it note. Okay. Just like... What makes the Biltmore a special place to go? Because you oh, even gosh. bought a membership, didn't you? So yes, you could we go did. Back? Yes, we did. Yeah. That feels like it needs to be an episode of itself. But I will tell you, one of the, the main takeaways that I did not expect to take away from the Biltmore is how much thought hmm. was put in to that building. How much thought he put into everything. He even went to the extreme of when he was trying to decide where rooms were going to be, Mm -hmm. they put up some kind of scaffolding and they said, here is what the view from your bedroom will look like. Wow. You don't do that now. Now we would just build it. Well, okay, that's what my view looks like. He thought of everything down to what his view was going to be, where everything was. I ended up getting a sticker because I like stickers. I collect stickers. I don't know why. I just love them. And I put it (laughs) on my laptop and I was like, what is this going to represent to me? And it represents put thought Mm. into everything that you do. Just remember that thoughtfulness that created this giant house that is still around today. Mm, So that's that's what I took from it. There's my essay answer. Yeah. Nice job. Thank you. I've been to the Biltmore. I love that place. Mm -hmm. And I love history. So Mm -hmm. like one of the things, of course, that I love is not just seeing the architecture and, you know, but I also like hearing all the old stories of things that happened. But the reason why I started there is because places like that are wonderful. Mm -hmm. But... The actual kind of focus of our episode is Colonial Williamsburg, which in my mind is set apart a little bit from other fantastic places like the Biltmore because there's something unique about it, which is the fact that it is set up to be more than a museum type place, more than just kind of an artifact or a site to visit. It's actually set up as sort of like um, a living museum. Because they have reenactors, right? Right. They have the reenactors. They have authentic buildings. They've recreated kind of this section of a city. Mm-hmm. It is meant to be kind of immersive almost. So some people's full-time job is to be reenactors at this Colonial Williams- Williamsburg? Yes, I would assume that it would definitely be what the full-time job. What are they reenacting? Job. 
So they've set it up in the city that was a, a cultural center, a government center, a political, you know, hotbed. And they have all these different homes or buildings. And so some people might pretend to be actual characters who live there, whereas other people might be craftsmen, tradesmen. Other people might kind of dress up and just pretend like they are somebody who might be stationed in that home, whether it would be a servant or whether it would be somebody who lived there and they, they just kind of share with you what their life is like. So they or, talk directly to you. Yes. Okay. Yes. When they reenact, are they the people that are doing daily stuff? Do they have a, do they have a 20 minute block that they sort of repeat or are they just in character all day, no matter what they're doing? You have people who are in character all day and you just interact with them. You have people who present almost monologues. So for example, I visited there recently. I was there just in April, partly in preparation for this podcast Mm. episode, but I've been there before and I I love the place, honestly. But when we were there in April, we, for example, got to see George Washington as he presented part of a speech and he just kind of talked to us about his philosophy. And he Um, understood that you were modern? Or was he speaking to you as if you were people from that era? He spoke to the audience as though we were people from that era. That's cool. We also, Lafayette, we got to hear Lafayette speak. Ooh, Lafayette. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and then just walking through the greens one day, all of a sudden we see this fellow on horseback. Again, it's Lafayette. He's just kind of riding around and he would just stop and then he would just start interacting with people and people would just start asking him questions and he would respond as though... You were from that era. We were from that era and if you asked him something, he would be like, well, of course, I have no idea what you're talking about as <laughs> as of this time, we only have this situation okay. if you were asking about something that had not like yet occurred. Like a cell occurred. phone. And then he would, yeah, he would find a way to be like, now if I were to predict or if I were <laughs> to make a guess, he would find a way to kind of subtly predict something that might happen after the time period in which he was set but yeah they are in character that's cool awesome that's cool we're going to get to how this connects to our podcast theme which of course is somehow related to the entertainment industry i know right right now it's a little nebulous but if you'll bear with me i thought before we jump into not necessarily reenactors are still actors they are it's a different kind of acting that's a that's an excellent point but Mm -hmm. i'm actually going to take this in a slightly different direction okay however if you'll bear with me i'm going to give a little background on williamsburg first okay just to kind of give us some context yeah i'm interested on the website which is run by the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, they list their mission, their educational mission, through immersive, authentic, 18th century experiencing and programming for our guests. That's how they phrase it. They are going to educate people about this time period. Here's what I found fascinating because I've actually been there five times now. No kidding. I have. I really do love this place. I need to go. Okay. You need to go. But when I was doing a little research for this episode, I learned so much that I did not know even Mm. after having visited five times. So Williamsburg was founded as the capital of the Virginia colony in 1699. The original capital, Jamestown, was was the first permanent English-speaking settlement in the New World that was founded in 1607. But colonial leaders petitioned the Virginia Assembly to relocate the capital from Jamestown to a place that was more inland and... This new city was renamed Williamsburg in honor of England's king at that time, who was King William III. So now we have Williamsburg as this very important political place, right? It was one of America's first planned cities. Okay. It was laid out in 1699 under the supervision of Governor Francis Nicholson. It had beautiful capital buildings, and it became home to the oldest legislative assembly in the New World. So this was a hot place to be. It mm-hmm. was the center of political, religious, 
economic, and social life in Virginia. Wow. Yeah. Fun fact. Again, all these times I'd been there, I was like, oh, hey, this is what a typical city would have looked like in this time period. But no, on this most recent visit, one of the ladies stationed at a home, she was letting us ask questions, and she revealed to us that this would have been like the Beverly Hills of of this time period. So it was upscale. It was upscale. It was for the rich, the wealthy, the well-to-do, the well-educated. Mm. It was not the place for the normal everyday person such as myself. Okay. <laughs> I, w- I would not have lived there probably. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting. With that in mind, thinking about Williamsburg as the center of all this wonderful knowledge and, and culture, here are a few of the notable facts about it at the time. It is where the College of William and Mary is located. Okay. That was founded in 1693, and it is the second oldest institution of higher learning in the U.S., with Harvard being the oldest. You knew I was going to ask that. I What's the first? Was, I knew it was coming. <laughs> You're and learning. In, <laughs> in fact, on my tour, when, when that person said that, I was like, what's the first? <laughs> yep. The Sir Christopher Wren building at William Mary is the oldest college building that is still standing in the U.S., okay. and it is the oldest of the restored public buildings in Williamsburg. Remind me again, what when you go to Colonial Williamsburg, what year is it? Well, sometimes the the, the character actors will tell you a different I think they don't all pick the same year but that's an excellent question I'm not sure if I can pinpoint exactly which one it is If you were is. saying Washington and Lafayette that's in the 1700s right 1776 Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Because you're saying 1600s. We don't know a lot about the 1600s. Sometimes I just think, I wonder what life was like. We know a little about the 1700s because of Mm -hmm. Washington and all those guys, you know, first president. We kind of pick up our history there. But Mm -hmm. what was it like in the 1600s? Even before that? I don't know. That's just things I think about. No, but but you actually foreshadow one of the ideas that I'm going to get into, which is the fact that how do we know anything? Like, Like, how important is this place for letting us know what life was like in the 1700s because Mm -hmm. without them where would we be this sir christopher wren building at william and mary is still standing and it is still being used we'll talk more about that in a minute a few other things so famous political leaders emerged from the college of william and mary such as president thomas jefferson and President James Monroe, and President John Tyler. It also had the first hospital that was established in America for the care and treatment of mental illness that was founded in Williamsburg in 1773. And it was the place where General George Washington assembled the Continental Army in 1781 for the siege of nearby Yorktown and the winning of American independence. Williamsburg had a lot going on. Yeah, it did. Here's the part that starts getting interesting to me that, that has some new things. When the capital moved back, in 1780 to Richmond, Williamsburg turned back into this little quiet college town in a little rural county seat. They speculate on the government website when it's kind of overviewing the history of Williamsburg that the loss of that capital city status may actually be why we are able to have it as Colonial Williamsburg Mm. today because it kind of lost popularity. Mm -hmm. A lot of those buildings then just remained. Right. When we went to Charleston and took one of the walking tours, he said the fact that they'd lost the war Mm-hmm. actually is what preserved Charleston because they didn't have the money to do any of those repairs. So it kind of got stuck in time. That, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I just felt like Colonial Williamsburg had just always remained that way. Like, oh, they just captured it and, and let it stay the way it was. No. Doing this research and actually when I was in Williamsburg at this last visit, I went and visited some places that I hadn't been before to mm-hmm. like kind of look for some of that archival stuff. Super fascinating because the restoration of Williamsburg actually did not begin until 1926. Six. Oh. And by that time, 
it did not look at all like the way it had looked in Colonial Williamsburg. I mean, okay. it, we had some gas stations. We had really? we had buildings. It had changed. And so what happened was the rector of Bruton Parish Church, the Reverend Dr. W.A.R. Goodwin, he brought to the attention of John D. Rockefeller how important this was to try to preserve it. And so Rockefeller was the one who funded and led this massive reconstruction effort so that we have it the way we see it today. They started the restoration with the purchase of the historic Ludwell Paradise House and then they just continued to build and build and build and now we have more than 500 restored and historically preserved buildings today that includes wow. sheds and So was it reconstruction or deconstruction? Like did they rebuild it or did they take away what it was? I don't know if this makes sense. Like you said there was gas stations. Mm-hmm. So did they tear down the gas stations or were the gas stations in historical historical quote unquote buildings and they just restored that building? So a little bit of everything. Okay. They had to buy this land. I mean, it is fascinating because I got to see all these pictures. Actually, I think it was inside the gift shop at the Bruton Parish Church that they had almost kind of like this visual reconstruction to show you what had happened. But... 88 of the buildings are originals. And so some of those had to be reconstructed. Some buildings had to be moved from other places in the city and put within this historic area. So you had like a lot of buildings that were moved and put in Colonial Williamsburg because they weren't there before. You had other buildings where they just, they did a lot of architecture and they would look for the foundation. They would look for where certain buildings or sheds or whatever might've been. And then they would try to recreate them. And then they had to get rid of a lot of things that were not supposed to be there. So there was a lot of, as you said, deconstruction as well. What's cool, you can actually go on their site and you can find this, but there was this fascinating article posted on the Colonial Williamsburg site that explains the role that photography and archeology span played. Here's this little quote. Photographs became a key element in the process of recreating the 18th century town along with maps, manuscripts, archaeological excavations, and existing architectural evidence. So it talked about how they started putting this call out to all the people around Williamsburg and they started saying, give us your documentation, give us your pictures, give us anything that's going to help us figure out what it used to look like, where buildings used to be, how things were decorated, what types of artifacts. I mean, they just started pulling everything they could to try to come up with the most authentic reconstruction that they could, including gardens, like down to how would a garden have looked? Where would the garden have been located? Everything. That's truly amazing. It is. Is, is fascinating. When, did, when would photography have... You couldn't have a photograph of the 1600s or the no, 1700s. This, no. I guess paintings? I don't know. Mm, In the 1700s, okay. you probably have certain things that you could pull from. It says um, on that site that they were so meticulous with all of this archiving of pictures and photographs that now their visual archives encompass half a million images. Wow! And so I flipped through and just looked at some of the pictures thinking about here's how the town looked at this time in 1926 or prior to 1926. Uh This is what I'm seeing now. It was just fascinating. Or Or to watch. They made them, as they were going through the process, they had to document like every stage. Like here's how this building look when we started or here's how this plot of land looked and then as they would do every step they had to kind of record it so you can literally watch things grow and that's neat today we do have the skilled craftsmen wearing 18th century attire that are well COVID has affected this but normally and normally 
you would see these craftsmen, these workers, these supposed residents, politicians, etc., all the way, everywhere throughout the place. Mm-hmm. With COVID, it looked different. Yeah. yeah, it was much sparser, but they still managed to make it work. Okay. Yeah, even to like having, they would have people in the tavern who ran the tavern the way it would have looked, playing games that you would have played at that time, or mm-hmm. the militia coming in. Oh, neat. Yeah, all kinds of cool things. That is cool. Lots of history about Williamsburg. Now, here's the tie to the entertainment industry. Okay. So you have a place like this Mm -hmm. that is a living historical site. Mm -hmm. What an advantage when you are making historical film to be able to set your production in a place like this. Yeah, the cost alone it would save you. It already exists. Right. Colonial Williamsburg as a filming location is the focus of this podcast. And I started by looking on IMDb to see how many times it listed Colonial Williamsburg as a film location. And it listed 43 different instances. Wow. Yeah. Now, a lot of those were short things. Maybe might, establishing shots. Or little educational shorts. Uh, okay. or But there were three in particular that we're going to hone in on today. All right. Okay. Now, you'll be interested in this, so I'll just kind of throw out one more little tidbit. The first earliest listing was a 1940s Cary Grant movie called The Howards of Virginia. Oh, I need to watch that. I have not seen that. I haven't either. The most recent listed on IMDb, they may not have updated recently, but their most recent listing was 2017, a movie called The Renewing. The three that we're going to talk about today fall somewhere in the middle of those. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Before we jump in, do you think we should take a small break? Sure, let's do it. Okay. Have you listened to the latest episode of Scandal Water? It's all about some idea you had. But anyways, it got me thinking. Do you think they would let us come on for a second and talk about their show and talk about our show? You know what? I don't think they would mind, but how would you do it? Um, I think I would do it just like this. Hey, it's Bubba. And I'm here with Mertz. Hey, everybody. How are you? Well, you know, uh, we have our own podcast. Mine's called Adventures with Bubba. And his is called It's Your Break. That it is. And um, we want to make sure that you knew about this new podcast that you're listening to called Scandal Water. And Mertz, why don't you go ahead and just kind of talk it up? Well, you know, it, it is one of those things that I got started on because Ashley's one of my friends. And you know, I've got to work with Candy before. And got listening to this podcast. And I was like, whoa, this is really, really cool content. And... I was like, hey, how do you all go about doing your shows, you know, and and gave them an idea like, hey, this would probably be a cool topic. And that's how the last episode came to be, where they were talking about copyright and infringement and things like that. So, wow, you know, it's it's one of those things that they actually listen to their audience. That is so, so cool, man. You know, give them a listen. And uh, that's that's kind of how I would do it. You know, that was actually really, really cool. Really cool. So, Mertz, um, would you mind being on my show next? I, I, I could. What do you What do you want me to do on your show? Well, I got this idea about you jumping a shark. All right. So we are back mm-hmm. and ready to talk about a few films or episodes set in Colonial Williamsburg. Well, the first is a story called... The Story of a Patriot. I find this one super interesting because I have seen this. Really? A few different times. Okay. It is a motion picture that was actually filmed in Colonial Williamsburg. The whole thing was filmed there. It's only 36 minutes long and it was first released in 1957. Now, what I think is fascinating about it is the fact that it was actually created as an orientation video for visitors to Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, 
And it's the story of a fictitious Virginia planter by the name of John Fry, who is prominent in various political clashes that lead up to the American Revolution. The actor who plays the lead role of, of this guy, John Fry, is Jack Lord. Do you know who that is? The name sounds really familiar. Why does it sound familiar? He was the star of the original Hawaii Five-O. That's why. If you ever saw it. Yes, that's why. Okay. Yeah. So like if you're watching it, you see the, and you're like, I know this guy, Mm -hmm. even though you can tell that this was filmed a long time ago. Again, it was filmed almost entirely in and around Colonial Williamsburg's historical area. Throughout the course of this little motion picture, it, it points out by name a number of the historic buildings. But what sets it apart from other museum orientation films is that instead of just being kind of informational or almost like a travelogue, it told a narrative. It told the story. It was a story. It okay. gave you the context and it set the story. And according to this article that I read that was in the Virginia Gazette, the film was also ahead of its time in terms of filmmaking technology because it said that the technical advances utilized by the director, George Seaton, included pioneering high-definition ultra-widescreen format known as VistaVision rather than what they normally used at that time, which was a standard 35-millimeter film. And they used this six-channel sound recording system instead of a single-track mono-aural system. It was good stuff for 1957. So the coolest thing to me is the fact that this film was shown for the first time at the Visitor Center for Colonial Williamsburg on March 31st of 1957. And from that point on... It continued to be shown daily for the next 63 years until it had to be paused in March of 2020 for COVID. Oh my gosh. I know, right? It is actually listed as the longest running motion picture in history history, which I think is super cool. That is cool. Go Jack Lord. It said in one site that they were tracking the number of people who had seen it. Mm -hmm. And this is the most recent data they had, but they had their 30 millionth person to watch the film in 2002. So So is that how you saw it? Were you one of those people? Yes. Like I was just visiting Colonial Williamsburg and Uh saw this film more than once. 36 minutes is a, that's a commitment. It is a commitment. And one time I saw it on an eighth grade field trip. Oh, But, but it was so good because it actually did give you context Uh like by the time you finished the film you had a better sense not only of the history and the events but it had kind of introduced you to the city a little bit okay so it was worth your time that's cool plus if it was really hot it was nice yeah that's true (laughs) (laughs) but sadly i will say that when i was there this past april i did not get to see it Mm. because i mean not not even the visitor center was open oh yeah it was closed down here's a cute little story that you're going to enjoy so it said that in the early decades of the film showing, students from college and the College of William and Mary would take their little Colonial Williamsburg passes because they're right there on the same campus, mm-hmm. and they would go over to the visitor center and they would watch the film over and over again. Apparently, this might have been a cool thing to do. And it said that they would irritate the visitors by performing the dialogue with it, which they had memorized, and they would just kind of say it along with mm-hmm. the film. And then sometimes they just thought it was fun to point out mistakes they would see because apparently at one point you see a bus that's in the distance kind of rolling along (laughs) and there's another point where the character gets off the horse twice so they're just trolling the visitors yeah Yeah. that's funny the kids had fun with that their favorite phrase that they uttered through the 1960s and 70s as these college kids would watch this was when the character of fry his mother would say english goods were ever the best (laughs) so 
the, their favorite moment. That's cute. So that was one of our three films. Okay. But now we're moving on to the second. And okay. I think this one will be much more well-known okay. by our listeners. John Adams, the oh, miniseries. Oh, John Adams was filmed there. Yeah. Now, it was filmed in other locations, too, yeah, yeah. but uh, large parts of it were filmed That's there. That's cool. That was a good miniseries. Was, if you haven't seen it, you should it? check it out. And, and they have that option of pop-up videos. like. The, oh, they do? Yes. Oh. I'm, you have one of the settings, like if you're watching it, one of the settings where you can see basically kind of like the little trivia facts. Oh, I would love that. It was amazing. Okay. I'd already watched it once, and then I went back and watched it again for that. <laughs> but just to kind of review, John Adams was HBO's seven-episode miniseries that was based on the book by David McCullough, and it was filmed February through May of 2007. The scenes in Colonial Williamsburg, okay. I should say, were filmed in that time frame, February through May of 2007. And by the way, Tom Hanks' production company, Playtone, was the one producing the miniseries. No kidding. Yeah. As we've already said, it was only one of the four shooting locations, but it was perfect for this film because it's so authentic. So perfect mm-hmm. place for filming. But despite the fact that it was so authentic looking, it still took a little work. Mm-hmm. So for example, in an article published in a Williamsburg newspaper, it talked about the fact that it took a team of about 50 crew members and a bunch of assistants several hours, along with a fake snowman floodlights and other bulky equipment to try to create this one scene that they wanted to shoot using Colonial Williamsburg restored jail on Nicholson Street. And so the scene at the jail was supposed to recreate John Adams meeting with imprisoned British soldiers. Uh, You remember mm -hmm, that? I do. Yeah, after the Boston Massacre in 1770. If you remember in the film, I didn't remember this until the book and the movie reminded me, but Adams, who of course became the second president of the United States, he served as as the defense attorney yes, for yes. British officers yes. involved in the Boston Massacre. Yes, he did. I thought that was one of the most dynamic scenes. It was great, wasn't it? Yes, it, it really was. I learned so much. In this particular scene that they were shooting, they were using the jail's outer yard, and so they had to blast it with fake snow and ice to try to make it look like John Adams' frigid little yeah. Boston setup. So just a few other scenes, you'll probably remember these, Ashley. But for one night scene that was supposed to show a town meeting at a church, they shot it in Bruton Paris Church, and they brought in a hundred extras. Wow. And then Laura Linney, who played John Adams' wife, Abigail. She's she, such a great actress. She's her. so underrated. Yeah, but she was there. They had to kind of fix the church up to make it look a little plainer. Okay. You know, to kind of make it fit with that time period, because mm-hmm. now it's been spruced up and has a lot more decorations over the years. And they wanted to make it look like a Congregationalist church in the Northeast at that time. Another scene that was supposed to show a tent encampment of the Continental Army, which John Adams had visited in the winter of 1776. For that, they used a grassy area in front of the Colonial Williamsburg Public Hospital. So they had to set up a few dozen soldier tents, and they also had to use special effects to make it look snowy there for that scene. There was another scene that they filmed in the Robert Carter House, where they were showing British officers ransacking an abandoned Continental Army war room. And then they also used the College of William and Mary's Wren building that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Remember, that's the one that was on the college campus that's still kind of in operation today. They made it represent a Harvard interior room since they said that it was designed very similar to collegiate chapels in Great Britain. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Just a little side note here. They are still holding, well, okay, pre-COVID, they were still holding (laughs) classes in that Wren building. So I don't know now what they're doing, but at least up until March of last year, they were still having some classes and the chapel, at least up through last March, 
continued to be used for student worship services Very in various neat. denominations. Very cool. Yeah. And other things too, music recitals and such. And they did a few scenes at the governor's palace. Another benefit from filming at Colonial Williamsburg was it provided a nice resource to the filmmakers on historical accuracy because it talked about how they would sometimes check in with some of the Colonial Williamsburg interpreters or directors who would talk to them about, for example, here is how British soldiers would have bowed and mm. and held their feet mm-hmm. or conducted themselves during the 18th century. It even has the quote, it said that the interpreter Mark Hutter one of the Living History Museum's tailors and someone involved in their evening programs at that time had literally told this guy, watch your feet, make sure your toes are turned inward. It should almost be balletic. How do they know that, though? Lots of research, books, oh, okay. you know, probably some how-tos because they had all those etiquette manuals. Oh, true. Manuals, yeah, I'm yeah, thinking. that's true. But yeah, but th- good question though. Just to kind of finish this up, there were some benefits to Colonial Williamsburg as well. Pu- publicity, the locals getting to enjoy watching the process, mm-hmm. and it brought in money. Oh yeah. Yeah, it said that the filming happened intermittently, as we said, over maybe three to four months. At the time this article was written, it was speculating it was prior to this happening. They were saying they thought it was going to bring in around $60 million in money to Williamsburg in the Richmond area where they did a lot of shooting. Because of tourism? People would want to come see where they shot? Well, that and also the fact that they had to bring in 165 production crew members. And they were going to spend money in the town. Exactly. All that money. 14 hairdressers. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So we're ready for our final production that we're going to talk about that was set, that used Colonial Williamsburg as a film location. Okay. And that is... Turn, Washington Spies. Are you familiar with that? Not at all. It's good. Have you seen it? Well, here's the thing. My husband, Kirk, he had watched it all the way through, and I had seen just an episode or two and thought it was interesting, but I don't remember what kept me from watching it with him. What's it called? It's called Turn, and then there's... Dot, dot. Yeah, the subtitle, Washington's Spies. Okay. I did not watch it with him, but then because I knew this episode was coming, it made me interested in it, and I started it again, Mm -hmm. and now I'm... uh, I think I'm in episode eight of season one. It's good. I'm going to finish it. What's it, where can we watch this? I mean, I'm watching it on Netflix. Oh, okay, okay. But it originally showed on AMC, and it said that it was based primarily on historian Alexander Rose's book, which was called Washington Spies, The Story of America's First Spy Ring. Mm. And so here's a summary of the show that I found on Virginia's government website. It says, Turn, Washington Spies takes viewers into the stirring and treacherous world of the Revolutionary War and introduces Abraham Woodhull, who, after aligning with a group of childhood friends, forms the Culper Ring, America's first spy ring. It really is based on truth. That's very cool. The series ran for four seasons from 2014 to 2017, and the scenes that were shot at Colonial Williamsburg were from that final season, season four. Did they know it was a final season? Is it a full story? Or they were, they got canceled? My understanding is they knew going into it. They only wanted to do Okay, They were going to wrap it up. Yeah. I like that. I do too. Because I had not made it that far. I wanted to know what season four was about. And it said in their summary that it picks up the story of this main character, Abraham Woodhull, and his spy compatriots as the action accelerates towards Yorktown, the pivotal 1783 battle in Virginia that tipped the balance and ultimately decided the war. So that's what season four was about. And then we had the the scenes that were 
using the Colonial Williamsburg as the set were from a few of those episodes in season four. So it talked about the fact that they, again, used the Christopher Wren building as one of their locations. They used it to appear as the throne ring for King George. And then it also talked about the fact that they used the streets of Colonial Williamsburg to substitute for Philadelphia as they had a scene where Benedict Arnold and Peggy Shippen, one of the characters that appears in this story, ride through the street. And then they also did a few shots outside the palace green and the governor's palace. One thing that was kind of cool when I was researching, it mentioned both with the filming of John Adams and Turn that the locals were super excited about this, that, that a lot of them would show up to watch the filming, either because they were hoping to see one of the actors or just because they wanted to see the process. But one of the residents had a nice quote in the Virginia Gazette that I thought was kind of cool. Here's, here's what this lady said. It's always a treat to see Virginia being recognized and used in filming and these kinds of things in productions. Location filming is always better than Hollywood sets, I think. It tells a story that I think a lot of people didn't know about. And so I really liked her quote because it mm-hmm. brought me back full circle to where we started this mm-hmm. episode. That mm-hmm. idea of the fact that because it's immersive, mm-hmm. because it's a living history type right. place, right. it tells its own story. Yeah. It's a living, breathing thing. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things, like, uh, going even further back to the very top of the episode where you're asking me about Biltmore. Brian loves Disney World. Loves mm-hmm. Disney World as a set builder. He loves going there. He loves looking at the sets. And he said that as beautiful as he thinks the sets are in Disney World, you know that it's a facade. Mm-hmm. And he thought that Biltmore was even more beautiful because it was all real. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the same kind of thing. When you're on lo- when you're on location, there's more of a real feeling than when you're on set mm-hmm. because there's just that facade feeling. Yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. Armchair psychologist. That's taking us into our armchair psychologist question. Okay. So we've said before the power of stories, mm-hmm. right? Narratives and stories are ways that people get engaged. They hook us in, they draw us in, and they also teach us. We learn a lot from stories. And so we've talked about that. The fact that whether we're watching a play or a movie, TV show, whatever, a lot of times we'll kind of base our views of reality on what we see. Like that'll kind of give us ideas of what life is like or what relationships or people are like. (laughs) So when one of these works is supposed to be grounded in history, how much responsibility do filmmakers have to ensure that they represent the time and the events accurately? Oh, golly. I want to say 100% because you can't lie about history. I can't remember where I read this quote. It actually may have been in a YouTube comment. So I can't tell you who said it other than this YouTuber who heard it from somebody else. Mm -hmm. But they said that they had heard once that it only takes three generations to lose history. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So if you don't authentically tell what happened... Mm-hmm. then the next if, if you lie about some aspect of it it's like that game of telephone the next person who that's been told to they're going to tell their child this is the way it was you, you see that joke sometimes when people say i'm going to tell my kids this was the spice girls and it's not the spice girls or <laughs> whatever i don't know why i picked up the spice girls but they're going to say i'm going to tell my kids this well that's how you lose history i think as much as possible be as accurate as possible so if you have to blend fiction and fact in order to shorten it mm-hmm. then i think you have the responsibility to also release the fact. We recently watched the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. Mm. Oh, I did too. I saw that a while back. Okay. (gasps) Yeah. Really, really, really good. And what they did is they had a podcast, I think. 
I think it was a podcast that came out at the exact same time that said because their um, theme for Chernobyl was truth, mm-hmm. they wanted to be very specific. Like Emily Watson played a scientist and they said this is a cl- conglomeration of all the scientists. Mm-hmm. So she did not exist, but these themes did exist. Mm-hmm. And here's what we here's what we had to fictionalize. Here's what was fact. And uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the 1865, they did the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they released the episode and then they immediately released, released a behind the scenes episode where they said, here's what really happened. Here's what we fictionalized. Mm. So I think that's your responsibility is to be as truthful as you can, 100% if you can, in your story. But if you can't, then also release a companion piece that says, as far as we know, here's the truth. Here's what we had to fictionalize just to get the story across to you. I have so many thoughts in my head. My brain (laughs) doesn't know where to start. It's funny. Okay, so I'll start here. Being interested in history, many, many times when I watch something that's based on a book or something that I know to be true, I'll end up reading the book then later. Mm -hmm. So for example, October Sky was a really (laughs) great Mm -hmm. movie. Rocket Boys. Yeah. And I read when I read the book later, the book definitely, there were some things that had been Hollywoodized. Mm -hmm. There were some details, different things that had to be changed, whether it was because we have to shorten the story. They they Mm -hmm. did the same thing. They collapsed a couple of characters Mm -hmm. into one Mm -hmm. because it was made the the storytelling simpler, you know, those types of things. And because I read the book, then I did know the truth. Right. But I know a lot of people are not going to go read the book. Right. Now, a podcast does seem more accessible because it's a lot more I don't know, it's just friendlier to be Mm -hmm. able to just listen, you know, as people tell us the truth. But then I think about how many things, we've said this before on this podcast, for for longevity. You know, you start with something like A Little House on the Prairie, and in the beginning, it might have had a lot of Call the Midwife was the first, Mm -hmm. that book, and then they Mm -hmm. ran out of stories in the book. So then it just became complete fiction. Right. I mean, and all of a sudden, it'll go off the rails. Yep. (laughs) By the end of Little House on the Prairie, I mean, there was... Pure drama, pure soap. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the, the thoughts that comes to my mind. The other thing that I think about is how does history get twisted because of what's left out? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. of what's not mm-hmm. told. Right. As an editor, I know you're you're magical with your editing skills. And a story is told simply by what we choose to, to omit, to omit and, mm-hmm. and, and to put in or how we want to angle it. Mm-hmm. And I think about, oh gosh, what was the title of that? I read the book and saw the movie. It was the ladies who were behind the NASA space program. Oh, Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And I think about how totally oblivious to that whole storyline, to, to their incredible participation in that program right. and, and contribution to history. And I had no idea. Right. I guess in a way, what responsibility do filmmakers have, not just to be historically accurate if they're making a film, but also to try to represent a full story. Right. You know, like to, yeah. to choose to tell. I almost feel like it, when you put that, that vague based on a true story mm-hmm. at the top of your play, or top of your play, at the top of your movie, I feel like immediately after, in the end credits, I mean, you're not going to do it in the opening credits, but at some point where the audience will see it, you should have for more information, go to and then list a book or list something so that people can, if they want to, because some of it has to be, like when you said, I had no idea, it kind of struck me because I didn't either. But then what part do we have in that? Okay, so we had no idea, but we also never went and looked for it because that right. wasn't necessarily our field of interest. We're not, well, I don't know, I'm not interested in space as a like hobby. I don't look mm-hmm. into it a lot. So I would have missed this story. Mm-hmm. But for people who are into space, I think look at all aspects of it. See what other stories you could have missed and kind of seek those stories. Look for the history mm-hmm. because only by learning about history can you learn about today. Mm-hmm. Because I've said this before, I don't think that there's anything new under the sun. So usually history 
history repeats itself. Mm-hmm. And if we know what happened in history, then we can kind of predict, oh, I know what this is. Mm-hmm. This is coming around again. Yeah. Yeah. No, good points. But on the flip side, the more we talk, the more I kind of turn myself in circles mm-hmm. because then I have to give credit to the filmmakers because so many times I ended up reading or mm-hmm. learning more about yep. something historical because they brought it to my attention. Right. I go straight to IMDb and look at all those trivias oh. and say, okay, what was true? What was not true? Right. Time and time again. And I do love that. Mm-hmm. I do love the truth versus fiction within this account. Maybe there should of... be some kind of website for historical movies where mm-hmm. somebody just keeps a running tab of, so you can go to John Adams and they're like, here, here's what you're looking for. This was true. This was not true. And everybody just contributes to it. And it, it continues the historical record. Hmm. You know what? It probably is almost there. Because probably. every time every time I look something up, I'm able to find it, mm. you know? But it, I'm saying like a catalog. Oh, I see what you're like saying. A, like a worldwide, everybody put your info right here, like a Bible of history <laughs> kind of thing. Maybe you should patent that idea. Maybe. Maybe. Or, or you either start it or... or, or it probably already exists. But if it doesn't, <laughs> I would like to say I copyright this idea. Awesome. Right now, I, I have spoken. <laughs> it's, it's her. She's claimed it. I, I have. Right, I let have. me make note. Yep. Okay. So uh, before we close, if I could just insert one quick thing. I wanted to give yes. a quick shout out so, to some dear friends who yes. are educators with whom I've worked, but who have also been very involved with Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, what do they do? Well, Cheryl Ackeson is an on-site coordinator. Like, she's kind of right there in the thick leading their educational program. And her husband, Ron, has done some work with them, too. But she's there right now, as a matter of fact. And so not only did they give me a little some insights about Colonial Williamsburg, but I just appreciate we've talked so much about the importance of education and how... What a cool job. Right? Quick shout out to them and and for the work that they do there. Absolutely. All right. Well, that sounds like a really good way to... Wrap up this episode, Ashley. Yeah. So who do you want to who do you want to toast today? How about the fella who took that idea of preserving Williamsburg mm. to John D. Rockefeller and and caused all of this to be put in motion so that yeah. we can enjoy it today? Uh, let's see, Reverend Doctor W. A. R. Goodwin, who was the rector of Bruton Parish. We need to cheer Reverend Goodwin. Goodwin, you are a good man. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening playtone he did that because of uh, that thing you do tom oh, hanks's company yeah yeah yeah. it was playtone records in that thing you do and that was his first movie that's cool that he wrote you, you yeah. really do have i know it's stupid